is a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. I'm so very glad you've tuned in tonight. You know, we always on the show start with our first five. And my first five tonight, I am loaded for bear, so I hope you can listen fast. You know, we try in this segment to just hit on one point that really matters in the news. And I want to talk with you about how clearly, how clear it has become and what you can do about it to see what the American media is trying to do to simply destroy the possibility that Donald Trump can win this election. And I'm going to just start by this. Did you, are you aware, if any of you, let me back up and say, so over the weekend, yesterday, I spoke out of town, I was out of town most of the day, came back, sat down at my desk, turned on CNN, um, and I go back and forth on my office television between several news stations. And, you know, honestly, an hour later, I was so depressed because every news story and every commentator is blathering on and on about, you know, just it's all over. Donald Trump has, you know, just can't win. And he's turned off so many people and all these experts in very serious professorial tones talking about how it's so impossible for Donald Trump to win. And I want you to recognize my main point in today's first five is this. The media does not want you to think that Donald Trump can win. They don't want you to think it's possible. They want you to just surrender now and get real with the fact that it's just impossible and just surrender. Stop trying. Stop thinking it can happen. And I'm telling you, it is not true. Let me start with, there were two polls out recently that involved the uh, polling, obviously, about the presidential election. An August 16th Zogby poll and a four-way race. Trump is only down by two points within the margin of error. A Rasmussen poll, Clinton's only up by two points within the margin of error. A USC LA Times poll, Clinton, Hillary Clinton is up by under one point. Do you ever hear anyone talking about those on the media? You only hear the, po- the polls where they're claiming it's all over and Clinton's going to win and Trump is toast. It is huge in these polls. One factor is that Trump is leading and his lead is increasing among independent voters. And those are often the ones, folks, who sway elections. And they are also historically underrepresented in polling. Another story, another example, the media is just in the tank, not just to give Hillary this presidential victory in 2016. They're in the tank to make you feel like there's just no point in trying. And you just can't give up. You cannot give up. I'm going to tell you another thing. So there was a story to how the media misleads things. A story uh, that was actually touted on Facebook that said, essentially, Colin Powell acknowledged that he told Hillary Clinton it was okay to use a private server as Secretary of State. I mean, the headline, the headline on Facebook's trending topics, Colin Powell, former Secretary of State, confirms he recommended using personal email to Hillary Clinton. So you read that story, you think, well, gee, she, she didn't make it up all along. She's been saying past Secretaries of State. Okay, the story wasn't true. Colin Powell has come out and said, no, I didn't. I told her I used personal email for personal business. I always used for anything, secret, top secret, anything to raid the job. I used a secured server that was provided by the federal government. But this is the, not just that Hillary's continuing to lie about this, as she told that story to the FBI, but Facebook is happily repeating her lie. And then dutifully, Chicago Tribune, other newspapers pick up the story, salute. Wow, Colin Powell said, hey, 
he's Republican and he's validating her. Not true. Another example of how the the uh, media is just so far down the tank on for this woman to become president of this country is whose lies, L-I-E-S, whose lies matter. So I've been thinking about this. This week, President Obama tried to tell America that the $400 million payment over to Iran just at the time we they happened to be releasing the hostages was not ransom. Oh no, no. That was just and they first said it had no relation, then I said then they said, well, it was just kind of securing that the actual deal went forward. And then they finally said, well, actually, yes, it was more or less we paid to get the hostages out. But the rub of all this is there is no story. There are no panels pulled together on the mainstream news networks on CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS. No panels pulled together to say, how serious is this? The president not only, you know, paid for hostages, but he lied about it. And he's endangered future American assets around the world because now we've taught terrorists we indeed indeed do pay hostages. We indeed do negotiate with terrorists. But you know, the media is too busy talking about whether some 32-year-old swimmer at the Olympics who apparently lied or exaggerated some to some degree about the story that occurred when he he said a gun was pointed at him. This has caused these news these news outlets to impanel to pull together people panels to discuss the question, should he ever be allowed to be in the Olympics again? This is a serious, they're talking about that. That's the debate, not should Hillary Clinton, because she has lied on so many issues that it becomes impo- it becomes so routine. It's kind of like that thing with you, the, the experiments when you just, you, you become desensitized to something. It doesn't, you know, like children become desensitized to violence. The American public is desensitized to Hillary's perpetual, ongoing, relentless lies. It's not even news when she lies. And I'll tell you something else about the, the bias you can see in the news is when there's very few seconds we have left. The handling, as many people pointed out, of the flooding in Louisiana. Bush got creamed over and over and over. And everyone's ignoring the fact in the mainstream media that Obama is still golfing. But folks, when we come back, I'm going to tell you some great speeches Trump had this week. He's coming on strong. Don't go away. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I always hate to talk over our singer. This music, as I've mentioned many times, is Krista Branch. She's a singer. Her husband writes the music. He writes the lyrics. And they, this the songs that she sings capture the spirit of the show of America Can We Talk. You know, the show is always about the idea of re-embracing why and how America, why is America great how do we keep it this way? What do we have to hold on to? So I talked in the first segment, my first five, I talked about how the media, it just becomes a depressing force in your life. If you tune in to much of the mainstream media, you start to think, well, there's no point in this in this battle for this election. And, and you know, we've pointed out on the show many times how Hillary Clinton will be the continuation in on steroids of the kind of policies that we have observed President Obama do. We will have, we'll continue to have a weaker national defense. We'll continue to surrender the border. We'll continue to have a bigger, grower, growing, stronger federal government. All the trends that have hurt Americans will continue. And I think, and, and when 
people are at 70% of dis, 70% of Americans don't trust her. They, they can see she's a liar, as we all can. Majorities don't like her. They find her dislikable. And we have Donald Trump. And I have to say, if you've listened to the show for a while, you know, I wasn't on board with him at the start. But now that he is the candidate and he has stepped up and the content of his speeches, the, the messages he's sending, I'm telling you, folks, just in the last few weeks, you just would be i blown away if you haven't been tuning in and reading them or listening to them or find them later online and listen. He's given speeches. He had the foreign policy speech was in April. He gave his economic policy speech in August, August 8th of this year. He gave a speech on fighting terrorism, August 15th. He gave a speech on police and race relations and making communities safe again on August 16th. And he gave a speech in Charlotte, North Carolina, which I agree with the pundits who said, That kind of turned the corner. That speech was August 18th. Donald Trump is stepping up in the way that many people were looking to have him do within the last few months. He is stepping up, giving serious, substantive speeches. I want to share just a little bit of them. I'm going to post them all on the America Can We Talk Facebook page and on the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page and on our website, America Can We Talk You guys have got to listen to what he's saying now, regardless of what you thought about his past performance or past speeches. These are things I I use this word very, very carefully and intentionally. They're almost Reagan-esque. I'm telling you, he's starting to capture the feel that the people who supported him thought they saw in him. You're, you're hearing this in his speeches. So I've got a couple of clips I want to share with you and just talk about them. The first is uh, clip one. We're going to hit in just a moment. And this is a speech he gave in, um, okay, I don't know which one. I'm just going to go with it. Clip one. It was in Detroit, uh, economic policy. Go ahead. In short, the city of Detroit is the living, breathing example of my opponent's failed economic agenda. Every policy that has failed this city and so many others is a policy supported by Hillary Clinton. She supports the high taxes and radical regulation that force jobs out of your community and the crime policies have made you far, far less safe. And the immigration policies that have strained local budgets and the trade deals like NAFTA, signed by her husband, that have shipped your jobs to Mexico and other countries. And she supports the education policies that deny your students choice, freedom, and opportunity. She is the candidate of the past. Ours is the campaign of the future. And on that note, that was Donald Trump. Donald Trump speaking just this past week in Detroit. No, I'm sorry, it was August 8th in Detroit. Folks, I'm telling you, we have needed a strong speaker to be blunt and direct 
talking about the damage done to the American family, to low-income families in inner cities, to a city like Detroit that has gone. And you, I obviously couldn't play his whole speech. It was almost an hour. He began the speech by talking about how great Detroit used to be. That's when we used to put America first. We wanted to have jobs kept in America. We were productive when we had a, a city that was just the envy of the world in, in terms of producing cars. And the misery of Detroit is almost incalculable. And I love that he is, and in this speech, and we're going to play some more clips in just a minute, he is directly connecting the failed liberal economic policies, not just of Hillary Clinton, but the Democrat Party. They have stood for these policies for decades and decades and decades. And all the ideas that flow out of Hillary Clinton's mouth in her speech at the convention and beyond, where she's saying, we have great new job ideas, we're going to bring jobs, and we're going to use repair uh, infrastructure, and we're going to raise taxes on everybody who's working, and then we're going to create jobs. These are, she's recycling exactly what her husband did, recycling the arguments that Democrats have made for decades that have directly resulted in the poverty, misery, of the low-income communities in Detroit and in other major cities all over our country. Donald Trump is finally saying that, and he's saying it in a way that was compelling. And I'm telling you, I urge you, I can't urge you strongly enough, go read this speech. As I said, I will link it on the Facebook page for America Can We Talk. He's actually talking about ideas that matter. And he's, I'll tell you, this this idea of the um, Democrats' um, always seeming to win the mayor's races in inner cities. You know, there's lots of data online, probably a lot of you have seen this, but, you know, the 10 poorest cities in the country, the 10 poorest are run by Democrats and have been for decades and decades and decades. And this is one of the kind of big, um, you know, challenges that Donald Trump is not willing to just surrender his campaign is not a traditional Republicans campaign. He's going to go talk to the inner cities and we're going to play more in a second. He talked about and we're going to talk in the second hour about Donald Trump's pitch directly to African-American voters. And, you know, um, back to our theme of the, my first five today about the media. The media is just having conniptions. How dare Donald Trump suggest that maybe inner city black Americans would be smarter to vote Republican? You get the eye roll, you get the disdain, you get the tisk tisk, you get these smart aleck, snarky, typical presentations by media and these alleged uh, experts on <laughs> on the mainstream news stations, all just competing to find the, the snarkiest snark they can to refute the idea that there is maybe something wrong with this picture where inner city poor black Americans continue to vote for Democrat policies that have left them, as Donald Trump just said, with rotten education, no jobs, no path out, a miserable economy. And Donald Trump is he's being the most inclusive and and, and just inclusive of all Americans by inviting them all to join the American dream. So I'm going to hit the um, the next clip. This is a clip from Donald Trump spoke in Charlotte, North Carolina. That was just on the 18th recently. And he used the expression, the new American future. Love, love what he said here. Let me hit me with clip two, please. We are one country, one people. And we will have together one great, fantastic future. Together, I'd like to talk about the new American future, 
that we are going to create as a team together. We cannot make America great again if we leave any community behind. Nearly four in ten African-American children are living in poverty. I will not rest until children of every color in this country are fully included in the American dream. Folks, I have to tell you, this is a kind of speech I am I'm just so excited about it. And you know, I Donald Trump has had lots of challenges with the media. They twist what he says, they contort what he says. He says something straight out, they turn it. But you know what? If you just jump over the media, ignore the media that's never going to tell you what he's saying and listen to the guy. Look, I wasn't excited about Donald Trump either. As you know, I really supported Ted Cruz and I think he would have been a great president. But at on November 9th of this year, we're going to have either President-elect Hillary Clinton or President-elect Donald Trump. There's no other choice. And if you're one of those people thinking, well, I'm going to cast a vote for the Libertarian or the Green Party, you know what? Hang it up. Stay home. Don't do that to us. This is outrageous that we are at this point when every rational person can see the failed Democrat policies who've hurt Americans and we have an opportunity in front of us to choose someone who's willing to speak with clarity, with, with excitement. I'm telling you, the energy of the Donald Trump uh, rallies are, is amazing. So I don't want you to buy into the media's talk and think that there's somehow no solution left. Donald Trump's on a roll. Don't don't miss it. Okay, coming back after the break, we have Pete Hegseth joining us, the author of In the Arena. You will love this guy. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm so glad you tuned in tonight. We have the greatest guest on tonight, and we believe we have him online, Pete Hegseth. Hello, sir. Do we have Pete? We do. How are you doing? Okay, there he goes. Okay. Hi, sir. I'm so glad we have you. Okay. Well, you know what? I will want to tell our listeners that um, here in Texas, I went to an event a few months ago, and they had a speaker, which was this gentleman we're about to talk to, Pete Hegseth. And... When he was talking, it was funny because I do this radio show and I was with a lot of people who hear this radio show and they were commenting afterwards, he sounds just like you. So, which is a compliment to, uh, I am flattered that someone think that because you do a great job speaking, but I'm always on this idea, which is part of your book, about the idea of just speaking up and being in the fight for America. So, Pete Hegseth is the author of In the Arena. And it is a reference to a speech by Teddy Roosevelt. So, Pete Hanks, let me quick introduce you also. Uh, he's a former CEO of Concerned Veterans for America and Vets for Freedom. He's a Fox News contributor. You probably see him. He's on the uh, was it Fox and Friends a lot, Kelly File, and other places. He also happens to be a graduate of Princeton University and Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. So, And a former military uh, infantry officer and served in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Guantanamo Bay. So here is a patriot on the line. Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Let me just start with a book. This book, In the Arena, springs off of Teddy Roosevelt's speech in Paris in uh, 1910, I think it was, right? That's right. That's right. 
a speech given by Teddy Roosevelt that a lot of people know the quote that's made famous from that speech. It's the man in the arena quote. And I loved the quote. I printed it out, carried it with me in Iraq and Afghanistan and Guantanamo Bay. And the quote is, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the doer of deeds could have done them better or the strong man stumbles. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. And it's a motivating quote because it tells you you're going to fail. There will be critics. Nothing will be perfect. But what matters is you're out there fighting. And then I read the entire speech, and it lays out how republics like ours, great republics, free peoples, are only perpetuated by good citizens who are in the arena every single day fighting for it. That's what you're doing on this program. That's what so many people uh, are doing that we met with that night. That's what I try to dedicate my life to is our American experiment is fragile, is being given away uh, by, by folks with very, very different agendas, and each of us have a way that we can affect it. And we either are in the arena fighting for it or we're sitting on the sidelines, and the, whether it's the progressives or the status quo folks or the bureaucrats or the internationalists, they want us on the sidelines because they have an agenda to push, and we've got to fight back. I just love that. And, you know, America's founders were so brilliant with this idea that we, the people, are supposed to have the power. And our country is set up to encourage people not to just salute to Washington or salute to your government, but to be part of the whole shaping of the political conversation, shaping of America's future. I just I love that. And I love also taken from that quote you wrote in your book about how as you lay down in bed at night before you go to bed, you you ask yourself, am I Am I striving valiantly? Is my face marred by dust and sweat and blood? Am I spending myself in a worthy cause? Am I daring greatly? Am I in the arena? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all have to do that. And then we all have to ask ourselves, am I perpetuating those beliefs in the next generation? And that's a lot about what Roosevelt talked about. Talked about also is that you don't just, it's not just one generation thing. I can't secure it and then give it as a gift to my kids and then hope they perpetuate it. I've got to be very intentional about instilling those very same values, faith, uh, you know, belief in something greater than yourself, love of country, uh, understanding that uh, it's citizens, people, the people who perpetuate this, this freedom that we have, and that they need to be in the arena fighting for it, too. And I used to say that, you know, I fought or I went to Iraq and Afghanistan so that my kids wouldn't have to. And I don't say that anymore. I say that saying I fought and my kids are going to have to fight as well. Maybe it's on a battlefield. I hope not. Um, but if necessary, I hope they're willing to, or maybe it's in any other sphere or cause that they can be involved in. Uh, the job is to pass it to the next generation. The reason, I'll, the other reason I love Roosevelt's quote and speech is because he referenced Abraham Lincoln, who, as you know, you know, loved, the, revered the founders. I mean, our America's history is is not that far away. It's only 240 years old. Uh, we're standing on, on on ideas that are timeless, and uh, and and we have to remind ourselves because we can all get comfortable. And we got to get out of our comfort zone and be willing to fight back. Love that. You know, on the show, we talk all the time about the idea that America is not exceptional randomly or just kind of out of coincidence, but exactly because of the ideas that are behind it. And that if every generation doesn't understand them, uh, insist on them, teach them, live them, then you surrender them because they are ideas that, that those who love power will always want to take away, will always. So this, this kind of fight for America's heart and soul, it is it very evident in this election cycle and it's, it's evident in all yeah. sorts of policy areas too. I want to hit one I thought it was interesting in your book. You have a chapter on the right about our fight for Iraq and you ask the title of the chapter is, is it right to prevail? What are you talking yeah. about? Well, I use a, that's a that's a a, a a portion of the speech. Also, he talks about 
is it right to, to prevail? And if, he says, if you're fighting for something, it ought to be something worth fighting for. And as a result, if you're fighting for it, it is right to prevail. Then you ought to fight to win. And, and in that very same case, I use the Iraq as an example. A lot of people want to poo-poo the Iraq war and say it was just a giant mistake. I was there uh, before the surge when it wasn't going well. I advocated for the surge. I was back twice as a reporter walking the ground where I had served and saw the dramatic change that had occurred. We won the war in Iraq. We, we prevailed after the surge. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was defeated. Then Barack Obama uh, you know, retreated precipitously. Even Joe Biden in, in February of 2010 called the Iraq war an overwhelming success. Yep. So it, it, it had been won. We gave it away. So my, the point of that chapter is it is right to prevail. Winning matters, and we can win the wars we fight today if we show resolve, but not if we retreat. So the book talks about citizenship at home. It also talks about American leadership abroad. And, boy, we're at a moment where a lot of people want to just wash our hands of, of America's leadership responsibility and, and fall back. Listen, we have to be smarter about how we do it. But if we don't lead, then there's no one else out there to lead. So we, we better find a way to do it in a way that comports with the 21st century. I love everything you're saying. You're just so right on. And I think part of the reason that not just the, the leaders on the left, but some among the American people don't really get on strongly with the idea of the right to prevail or the right to win is because they really can't get clear about the idea that America's foreign policy is right or that <laughs> at, at its core idea that America as a country is a beacon of liberty and strength for the world and, and is right. There's something about wanting to be the moral equivalency of all countries, all religions, all ideas that cause them to feel guilty about winning. Well, amen. Uh, and that's why I've said this election is not even about left or right. Uh, it's about do you believe in America or not? Uh, the left is, is so, there's so much guilt about America. There's this belief that we are to blame for everything. They certainly don't believe America is exceptional, as you talked about earlier. And as a result, they've all kind of baptized themselves in this blame America first perspective. They see themselves as citizens of the world. They want to basically emulate Western Europe, which is effectively gut your military to pay for your welfare state, open up your borders, don't demand assimilation or allegiance, and then you wonder how, why you've been invaded from within and you're largely irrelevant, irrelevant on the global stage. If we did those very things, the same things will happen, which is why you know, Hillary Clinton wants porous borders. Hillary Clinton want, wants more refugees. Uh, Hillary Clinton wants to expand the welfare state. She doesn't want to grow or, grow or rebuild our military. Uh, you know, she's going to overregulate. She's going to overtax. Uh, she's going to continue stripping away things like our Second Amendment rights to the types of people that she nominates to the Supreme Court. I mean, that is what's at stake. And that's, it, it's just it's unfortunate that the Democrat Party today is no longer the party of a JFK who was a tax-cutting anti-communist who believed in America and was a war hero. Uh, it's a party beholden to very radical left-wing interests and that, that threaten and I think look at the very idea of America through, through skeptical eyes at best. We're speaking tonight with Pete Hegseth, who is the author of In the Arena, and you may have heard, recognize his voice. He's f quite frequently on Fox News and Fox and Friends. And um, I want to, there are so many things about your book I want to ask about, but I also want to, uh, right after our break, talk with about your recent trip to Israel. Were you in Israel sure. just this past week? Is that right? Yeah, just got home about 24 hours ago. Yep. Okay. Well, you know what? <laughs> uh, this is, my husband's um, business partner is an Israeli citizen. They do a lot of international deals. My husband husband uh, travels to Israel a lot and uh, is going again soon. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for, I read some of the commentary online that you talked about, uh, about your trip to Israel. I can't wait to talk about that. So we're going to have to head off to a break. You can hold on during the break, right? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. You know, we're talking with Pete Hegseth and this whole conversation about being in the arena, this is a vital, vital idea for you, everyone listening to think about is that the, those who speak up get, they, they win the argument. If you're sitting at home fuming about, gee, I can't believe what this candidate said, what this elected official said, what policy they came out with, they're wrong, they're bad. Get in the discussion and the show. I'm always saying speak up for America. Speak up for every little piece of America, the, the, what makes it great. Speak up on the issues you care about. And so Pete Hegseth has written this book, essentially, talking about that. So we're going to zip off to a quick break, come back, and, and he has lots more great things to say. Don't go away. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. And I love the line that uh, Krista Branch is singing in our show music. Can you hear us now? We, if we are in the arena fighting for the ideas we believe in, we're we're saying that to Washington. Do you hear us now? You, you need to be listening to what we think. So we have on the line just a great American, Pete Hegseth. He is the author of In the Arena. He's also a, he served in our military uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Guantanamo Bay. He's on Fox News. But this book is really, if I had to summarize in one sentence, it's kind of saying Everybody get into the fight to preserve America. Was that accurate, or was you? How, oh, what? that's exactly right. And it's also that's exactly right. It's also to say there's no reason to apologize or or, or be uh, be hesitant or be afraid at this point. There, it, it's it's eroding before our eyes. Let's not apologize. Let's be enthusiastic. Let's do it with a smile on our face. Let's remind people of the basic principles of why this country is special. Because ultimately, the 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 ridiculousness of the illogic of the left leads them to ridiculous places that common people say, what? That doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? And we, we get to point that out and say, you know, it, it's because they've gone off track of so many things that have made America special. And that's something I think we need to be doing. Love that. Love that. One chapter you have, it really reminded me of many things that are going on in the political and the presidential race this year. And um, I, I, you should see, you can't see because you're calling in the show, but I have your book here with all these stickers and stickies and highlights. So, but well, I appreciate that. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Uh, but chapter seven, you write about equal, equal uh, the chapter is called Equal of Opportunity, Revitalizing yep. the American Dream. That is one of the biggest battles because the left has convinced many people that the promise of America is equal outcome is somehow. Right. Yeah. And so this battle to re-energize or to reintroduce the concept of it's an equal. It's like everyone starts at the same starting line with the same well, rules. Yeah. Go ahead. And that's exactly right. And, there, and listen, we can't we know that we can't affect every every aspect of equal opportunity. People have different talents. They're born into different families that are rich or poor. There's a lot of different aspects to what that means. But what, as conservatives, we have to, we have, if that's our lodestar, equal opportunity, then we really have to fight for it and let it lead us where it leads us. And, and that first, you know, there's very little, you know, we shouldn't be dabbling in, in a lot of things, but we can make sure people get a quality education. And we can point out that the left has been failing 
you know, our, our inner city youth and many others for decades with, with the monopoly and the cartels on public education and the unions and the way they, they distort it. We should be fighting that fight front and center at the state level, at the state level, I repeat, and, and local level uh, to make sure that we, we make it loud and clear. It's not just about more spending, more dollars. The left will always do more of that. But their outcomes never improve. Why is that? Uh, and then also be willing to say uh, it's not that you hear a lot about income inequality, right? Oh, income inequality is so terrible. Income inequality is the wrong measure. The measure is social mobility. Can you rise and can you fall? Can someone who's poor become rich? Or someone who's rich, if they make mistakes, are they able to fail and fall? In this country, both should be possible. No one is too big to fail and no one is too small to rise. And we've got to be willing to do what is necessary to give everyone an equal opportunity. And sometimes conservatives miss that and we get painted as the party of the rich or the party of cronyism. It should be the exact opposite. It's the left who wants to manufacture outcomes. It's us wants to level the playing field. I love that. And actually, your book, In the Arena, which, again, if you, people are just tuning in, is based on a speech by Teddy Roosevelt in Paris in 1910. There's even an excerpt from Roosevelt's speech, which is really kind of prescient because it was 1910. And so there was not yet the big rise of socialism and communism in the world. But Yeah, he, yeah but he even hit on that. He says... Um, Full equality is, uh, let's see, the inequality of right opportunity. I'm sorry, I can't find the right quote. But anyway, he hit on the idea himself. He recognized, and you point out in your book, too, you can't have, you can't guarantee equal outcomes without destroying incentive, without destroying uh, opportunity. Of course. And you also have, it creates all the wrong incentives for people. And pretty soon, and so he has to point out later in the speech, you know, we should have shame for those in our society who are able, who, are, who have the capability or the ability to work, but they choose not to. Uh, we, should, we should point that, not celebrate that, not create more dependency programs. And he lays out, you know, a good citizen is willing, is willing to work. They're willing to fight. They're willing to have large, healthy, patriotic families. Demographics matter. And then they have character or faith. They believe in something greater than themselves. Free peoples can't govern themselves without an inner moral compass. Our founders understood that. They talked about our republic being for people of faith, of religious disposition. Uh, otherwise, you need the Leviathan of big government to tell you how to live. Uh, so we, we, we give away so many of those things and then wonder why uh, our, our culture and our politics are eroding in front of us. I, I, I read about the book uh, Abraham Lincoln quote. Because to Roosevelt mentions Lincoln when it, as it pertains to equal opportunity, but also yeah. that the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation becomes the philosophy of government in the next. And you want to wonder why millions of young people are voting for Bernie Sanders? It's because they've gone through school and never learned about capitalism, and they've heard they've been taught about redistribution. That's a problem. We have to recapture those institutions. Absolutely. It's going to take, you know, I don't ever want to be pessimistic and say, oh, it's going to take decades to change. But there are many things in America that have to change to help our country get back on track, including the yeah. quality of public education and and the actual content of education. The conservatives got to be got to be active in the local level, trying to insist that, that, insist that schools do teach. The, the right. virtues of freedom and free markets. We know we're going to run out of time before I get to turn to Israel, and I really want to ask you about your trip to Israel. Yeah. Um, so first I will say, my. so I mentioned my husband's um, business partner being an Israeli citizen. He's... Um, it's a very, it's an amazing thing because Israel gets criticized about being, um, about Zionism and about, about being intolerant of others. But the truth is, Israel is an amazingly diverse country. I mean, it, you can vote. Muslims vote in Israel. They have actual mm-hmm. members of, uh, who are mm-hmm. Muslim members of the Knesset. And they have a very robust, um, political debate. They, that's like their favorite pastime is political debates. You go to some <laughs> reception for the company that they're, that it's, they, they just do business startups, but we go to these receptions 
and they're talking away about political politics. So, um, but what they have, they have, I was going to tell you if you hadn't heard about this, but in Israel, there's been the observation by people on the conservative side that even there, the college campuses, just like in America, they are, are full of young people who don't appreciate the identity of Israel, who aren't, they, they need to be, you know, they, they are kind of, they're kind of sympathetic to the Palestinians and, and guilt, feeling guilty about the Palestinian yep. territories. It's that same phenomenon that we see in America. And it's, but anyway, I want to hear, so why'd you go to Israel and what, what was it all about? Love well, it. a couple of friends of mine invited me to go. My wife and I both went to see a lot of locations. We went up to the Golan Heights. We went on to Judea and Samaria, Samaria uh, in the east. We went, or excuse me, in the, in the, yeah, in the east part of it. Uh, we went down in the south near the Gaza Strip. Uh, we wanted to see it for our own eyes. It's the second time I've been there, but I went a lot, a lot of the more um, sort of contested areas, if you will. You mentioned inclusiveness. There were many times when there were places Jews couldn't go, but uh, Jews and Palestinians and Muslims or Arabs are able to, they're able to come into the Jewish part of the, the area as long as they go through security. Because, you know, everyone says that, that, um, that you know, it's, it occupied territories, all this stuff. That, that's all nonsense. The reality is, is, if, is if they gave away, if Israel gave away a lot of these areas to the Palestinian Authority, uh, they would become terror states immediately. Right. Just as happen, has happened in the Gaza Strip, just as has happened in southern Lebanon with, with Hezbollah, uh, if Judea and Samaria, the so-called West Bank, were given over to the Palestinian Authority, Israel would now have three fronts in which missiles are being, uh, are, are being aimed at them. Uh, so it's, it, this, and, and I also came away saying that the two-state solution that has been talked about for so long is really not a viable one. Uh, it, just, it just isn't because it accepts a state like that, or right, right up and in, in next to, and f- frankly, splitting Jerusalem. The Israeli people are amazing. Uh, they're 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 a longtime ally, a democracy. They fight for what they believe in. They are in the arena for for their very existence, uh, and it, we we'd better be as steadfast an ally of them as any in the world. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I just I, I love thinking about Israel right in the middle, surrounded by all those countries that are live under Sharia. They're so dark, and the, and you know, the Arab world is just full of turmoil. And Israel is this bustling, modern, Western, free market economy. In fact, the reason my husband and his partner have this deal is because there are so many inventors and great ideas coming out of universities. There, they need to find. I mean, they're inventors of great ideas. They have to find, you know, startup money and form businesses. I mean, that it's just it's an amazingly entrepreneurial country and, and just so Western. And yeah, they're, they're just like us. Why, yeah, and everyone serves, and everyone almost everyone serves. They're invested in their own collective defense, uh, and and all these countries around. They don't want to just have territory. They want to. It's in their charters to wipe Israel off the map. Uh, it, so all the rhetoric about. Uh, oh, apartheid state, oh, Zionism, all this. No, 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 no. They're, they're playing at the margins of what is the real game of Hamas, the real game of Hezbollah, the real game of most in the Palestinian Authority is to get rid of Israel. Let's not forget that. And, uh, and so we, we should, again, not play into the left's framing of this argument. Uh, it, it's just not true when Israel conducts itself incredibly well uh, in a very dangerous neighborhood. I love that you said that. Yeah, it is real. It is very important. The Palestinian Authority, uh, and in fact, the, the Iranian, the mullahs in Iran, Iran, those countries all surrounding or in the neighbor, in the vicinity of Israel, many of them are just committed to the destruction of Israel. And the idea, as you said, a two-state solution is, is kind of like putting two people in a cell when you know one's going to kill the other. You just you just don't do yeah. that. You, you can't yep. have it. Well, actually, our, our conversation is coming back around to your book, and we have uh, just two minutes left here, but you have a chapter yep. that kind of relates to all this, uh, the idea of being a citizen of the world and this concept yep. of really what you hear from Barack Obama 
proudly kind of expanded, trying to sound noble and insightful and futuristic. He says the burden of global citizenship continues to bind us together. Now is the time to join together, blah, blah, blah. He's constantly blah, blah, blah. Yeah, talking about the global identity and losing the American identity. So you have about a minute if you want to react to that. No, that's exactly right. And unfortunately, 40, I saw a poll, uh, almost a plurality of our young people today see themselves more as citizens of the world than citizens of America, probably more prevalent places other than, than Texas, but, but uh, very true. And we've been led for the last seven years by someone who sees himself more as a citizen of the world than a citizen of this country. I mean, he, he believes in internationalism, globalism. Uh, he wants to open our borders and, and erode our collective identity, doesn't want America to be, doesn't believe America is exceptional. And when you do that, you're going, again, it's an assault on the very heart of our country, on, on nationalism, on whether or not we have borders, a country, a military, a social contract. And that's the key part. We are not a race. We are not a gender. We are not a creed. We are Americans by ideas. And we have to defend those ideas. I'm telling you, you're singing, you're singing my tune. Pete, <laughs> Pete Hagseth, thank you so very much for writing this book, for your service to the country. And thanks for calling in tonight. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. Great to have Pete Hagseth. Well, you know, folks, I have to tell you, we have another great guest coming up at 730. That's Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Big time in the news these days. He'll be on with us at 730. Lots more talk about Don't Go Away. Number one source for premium talk radio. for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I have to tell you, we had, this is a really exciting night on our show, America Can We Talk. Loved speaking last hour with Pete Hegseth, author of In the Arena. And this hour, we have someone who's just been very prominent in the news and who's just done tremendous service uh, to America in many different ways. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, we have online. Hello, sir. Hi, thanks very much for having me on. I'm so glad to have you. I, I have your uh, newest book, Lieutenant, uh, I'm going to give a brief introduction of all of what you've done, but Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, General Flynn, has a book, The Field of Fight, How We Can Win the Global War Against Radical Islam and Its Allies. And I got to tell you, it is really, I mean, I'm not a military person, but I loved it. I love reading it and I love learning what you had to say. And, um, and now, as P. 
people probably know. General Flynn has been assisting and been involved with uh, Donald Trump's campaign to a certain degree and is uh, backing him. And so your name's been in the news a lot because of your involvement. I guess you actually went with um, Donald Trump to visit to for his first time. He got a national security briefing. I know you probably can't talk about the contents, but still, that must have been a pretty exciting meeting, pretty interesting meeting. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting meeting. I mean, I've been to a lot of those, thousands of them, actually. I've given them, and I've received them. And um, and it was actually very professionally done. It was two hours um, of a really great discussion. And one of the things that we walked away from the meeting with was, a, was the idea that the intelligence that we had received and, and, and sort of confirmed in our own view of the way the world is working is, is it is in stark contrast to the policies that this current administration is actually um, operating from. So, you know, the intelligence says, you know, basically told us one thing, which is the world is, is dangerous, very complex, and, and there's a lot of threats to our country and our way of life. And the policies that we see coming out of this administration are, are like the complete opposite to what we heard. So, that was the one sort of big takeaway, and I, that's really all I can say about what we uh, what we got in that uh, couple hours, though. But it was it was a fascinating discussion, and like I said, I've been through a bunch of them for Donald Trump. Uh, it, it wasn't necessarily an eye opener, but it, but it was uh, confirmed uh, in him what he knows to be true, which is we are facing some very dangerous times, uh, both external to uh, to this country and internally. General Flynn, you know, I'm so glad you said that. I'll tell you, before I started reading your uh, book, which, again, I wanted to say the title for our listeners, The Field of Fight, How We Can Win the Global War Against Radical Islam and Its Allies, written by General Flynn and also with Michael Ledeen. I started making a list of things I wanted to ask you about, and one was that CENTCOM, the story about CENTCOM and how Mm -hmm. the complaint came out essentially saying that the people on the ground were saying what we report as to what is actually happening is being filtered, monitored, manipulated. And so it's, it's to feed a political agenda. And then you, I, obviously you wrote about that in your book too. Doesn't that seem like you're, it's a, it's a disservice to the American people. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it, this is the dishonesty that, that I saw while I was still serving and that, and why I got so irritated with what I saw, but also, you know, the whole idea about intelligence is supposed to be truth to power. And uh, you know whether you like it or not, that's 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 too bad. It's this is what is this is what the reality is on the ground around us today, you know, throughout the world globally. So, um, you know, the problem is is that there was a there is a political agenda, and there has been a political agenda that this administration, and that includes Hillary Clinton while she was the Secretary of State, um, that they they just were gonna they were gonna follow their agenda, their political ideology. Uh, sort of Katie bar the door, and um, and it didn't make any difference what what they were getting, and uh, and I think that, in fact, I know many of these of these folks in the intelligence uh, field, when they were pushing their message up, and what they were finding was it was being filtered at the by essentially by political appointees at the national level, and some right around the president himself himself. Wow. You know, we're speaking with General Flynn here tonight, and I meant to tell you, sir, this segment, the way our show is set, this segment is kind of short. Mm-hmm. It's only uh, has about a minute and a half left or even less than okay. that. And then uh, but I want to get into several things in your book. And just one quick thing in this minute or so, just to start mm-hmm. off in your book, 
you talked about a time when there was in 2005 special forces attacked Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda safe house in Operation mm-hmm. Rivergate, and basically through that operation and another one that shortly followed, you were able to get a clearer, better picture of how sophisticated our enemy in ISIS is. And and you can give me a thirty second answer in that, and then we'll explore it more after our break. But yeah, so so we essentially captured their plans. And what we learned from their plans was just how uh, very, like you, I'll use your word, very sophisticated, very organized, very well led, and very well funded this organization was and had been for many, many years. And and that discovery uh, just like hit me like a brick over the head. And it it really uh, woke us up to what it was that we are facing and we are still facing today. Okay, we are speaking with General Flynn, who can stay with us during the break. This book essentially is talking about the idea of to really be honest with the American people about the war being waged against us. I definitely want you to talk about that. Then also the laying out a winning strategy. I just, I feel like America is crying out for strong military leadership. So I thank you for writing this. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about what you learned and we'll, and folks, you do not want to miss this. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. We are honored tonight to have on the line, the guest line with us, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, author of a great new book. And I'm a non-military person, a woman. I read it. I love it. It's called The Field of Fight, How We Can Win the Global War Against Radical Islam and Its Allies. So, General Flynn, I want to ask you about something you said in the book and, and love to have you explain to our listeners. You talk about the idea that we already are in a world war that we may not want to be, or we don't agree to that, but we are in world war and you say we're losing. So would you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, the enemy that we're facing, you know, is the Islamic state and, and this notion or this idea of radical Islamist terrorism. I mean, this is a big deal. And, and, you know, I really do appreciate you, you counting uh, my book, but this is, the book is really a message to the world, frankly, and anybody that reads it, and and I've been I've been talking about this for many many years. Um, this enemy has declared war on us. They have formally stated a declaration of war against us, the United States of America. And just for your listeners, in the last two months alone, there's been attacks in over 22 countries with with close to you know somewhere between seven and ten thousand people wounded and killed. You know, roughly a hundred and 50 attacks, and they, they are Islamic State-inspired or directed. And, of course, one of those attacks was a couple months back in Orlando, and where, you know, I think most of your listeners know that, you know, how many ta- attacks we've had uh, in our country, starting with 9-11 and actually going back to the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. And our current FBI uh, director, uh, Director Comey, he stated a couple of months back that we have, that the FBI has uh, a thousand, one thousand cases that are related to the Islamic State pending in the United States today. And in each one of our 50 states, 
they have, uh, you know, uh, cases pending against the Islamic State. So and this is a very, very real problem. And, um, and it, our current administration, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote, in fact, the number one reason is because our current administration does not allow us to even use the phrase radical Islam inside of our U.S. government. So it's been excised from our training. It's been excised from even the ability to be able to describe it in, in briefings and assessments. And, and our military guys and gals, they know it. They, they know what they're facing. The problem is their hands are tied, and, and I know it's very frustrating for many of them because I get, you know, I get emails and notes from them all the time. So the, the book, the big message in the book is that, uh, one, we're in a world war. Two, this, this uh, administration, and then over the last eight years, has not allowed us to even call it what it is. And three, to really state, in fact, that we can win. There's no enemy in the world that's unbeatable, and there's no ideology in the world better than our ideology here in the United States of America. And, and we should not fear uh, what our country was built upon, yet we're, we're constantly berated for talking about the flag, talking about you know, our own values and our own principles, and, our, and why our Constitution is such a great document. I mean, I mean I, th- this, the American ideal is the best ideal going anywhere, hands down, around the world. And yet we have people that will chastise you, Debbie, chastise me and have for calling uh, a threat or an enemy what they are. And in this case, radical Islamist terrorists. And, and I'm telling you today, so, you, so you're, you're, many of your listeners may not know this, but in the last 24 hours, there was a big attack. In fact, the largest attack in Turkey, Turkey's one of the other countries where this problem exists, a 12-year-old boy, the 12-year-old boy wearing a suicide vest was the individual who actually conducted the attack. Now, anybody that thinks that that's normal is out of their mind. But I will tell you, this is not about, you know, a, a, a diseased, uh, you know, idea, although I, I, I have called it a cancer attack. This is a very, very dedicated, determined enemy. And my concern is that, and what I know is that they will, and they have been infiltrating into our country for many years. I have a lot of examples on, on uh, that. And I talk a little bit about that in my book. Um, you know, when we talk about the, our, our border problems, what's happening down in South America, you know, the whole rise of, of this notion of our relationship with Iran and this Iranian nuclear deal. I mean, these are just incredible things that our, our uh, government has taken on and allowed and I look at it and I say to myself, Jesus, what's go- what is going on? We have, we have, the, we have such a, a lack of leadership in our country right now. And we have people that are surrounding, uh, and this has been going on for years now. This has been going on for easy eight years, maybe, maybe longer, but easy eight years. But we have people in our, you know, around our government that are influencing our president, influencing our secretaries of state, plural, uh, influencing other leaders in our government. And I, and I use the, 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 the word leaders, you know, very loosely here with some in our government. I do, because when I look at what's happening around the world, I, I like to use the phrase, you know, or the, the terminology that we are the best enemies in the world because we constantly telegraph what it is that we're going to do, or we say that we're going to do something, and then we don't do it. Like, for instance, you know, a red line, then we retreat from it. And we are the absolute worst friends in the world because we have left countries in a lurch out there 
because they're uncertain as to what is the what is the U.S. doing now? I mean, what what is the U.S. strategy overseas? What is our strategy at home? I mean, people are very countries are uncertain as to who we are, and all you have to do is look at what's the, the absolute mess in the Middle East. And I and I can go and you know I've talked about it in the book where the poor decision by the Bush administration, but then the incredible, incredibly stupid decisions by the Obama administration that had nothing to do with our nation's security, our national security, our safety. It had everything to do with a political promise and a political ideology that is actually against our way of life. I, I can't say it any any more passionately or any 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 stronger because. When I look at what's happening and I look at the decisions that are being made, I look at this and I say, my God, what is going on in our country? What is going on with the leadership of our country where they're making these decisions that they're making? And, and so, again, sort of to bring it back to the book, I, you know, there's a chapter titled How to Win. And, and, uh, and I try to you know, write this thing in a very simple language so people like, like, you, like yourself can understand it without, well, it's not, you know, it's not to, not to you know, it's, it's to say, this is not a military book for right, military people. Right. This is a book for the common, you know, man or woman to be able to read it and go, oh my God, I did not know this was going on. Exactly. And, you know, I, I just have so many directions I want to take this conversation. I just want to thank you so very much for your service, to, not just in, to the country, but to spell this out for America, because we've had a profound lack of leadership in this country, letting people know what is at yeah. stake, how serious our enemy is. And because of that, it kind of leads me to a question I want to ask you about is, it seems like more people need to understand what you're talking about because people have listened to President Obama mislead and manipulate the truth so that they don't really think it's a big of a problem. They think maybe the enemy is just ISIS. Maybe it's just yeah, one group, and then we can just get rid of them and it'll all be over. And, and the, you paint a bigger picture. Oh, it's a much, much bigger problem, and and you know, and, and let's let's be let's be you know blunt here. This is not about misleading or or swaying. This is lying, um, and this is being totally dishonest. You know, if there's one thing, you know, I'm a kid from a, a large Irish Catholic family, small town in America, from the smallest state in this in this uh, country, and you know, if there's one thing that I learned is that you you better you know you, you got better be able to you know. You know, tighten your boots and, and, and your shoelaces and get out there and, and work hard. But the other thing that I learned was that it's it's okay to be honest. I mean, we're a tough, resilient population when we're when we're told the truth, and and we want to be told the truth, especially from our government. If there's something that is lacking right now, and this is you know, and I I try to to relay this to the readers of the book is that there is a lack of honesty between the federal government, between our leadership in the White House and the American public. And the American public is, is really set up with it. And I think that's what you're seeing in the current uh, political season and the political campaign, because people are just sick of being lied to. And, you know, and, and like, you know, as, as you said up front that I'm, I'm uh, supporting Donald Trump. I mean, if there's one problem with Donald Trump is that he tells the truth. Sometimes, you know, he gets into too many issues, but, but he tells the truth, and, and I can tell you that it's, this the current administration and, and what we've seen out of people like Hillary Clinton, they just don't know how to tell the truth. And it's amazing to me that there are still people that are willing to step up and, and support uh, some of these people and, and, and support some of the things that they're doing. 
Because, I, you know, back, back, I'm sorry, back to this radical Islamist ideology, this is a very, very dangerous thing for our country because these people want to impose this notion of Sharia law, you know, in, inside of our own country. So I'm, I'm on my soapbox right now, Debbie. I'm sorry. It's okay. You know, we're going to, uh, we have a break coming up, but can you hold on during this break? I sure can. So glad, yeah. The, this mean guy in the booth keeps turning music on, and we have to stop talking. But I definitely want you to finish that thought. We're t- speaking with Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Come back. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is a great show tonight. Thanks for tuning in. We have on the line with us Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. General Flynn, I meant to mention when we came on in the second hour of my show, we have a roundtable. I have Chris here tonight and Dorinda, two of my other politically incredibly tuned in people, uh, friends. And we just talk politics in the roundtable. And I think Dorinda had a question for you. I sure did. Great. I just I want to thank you for everything you do, for one thing. And um, I'm a mother of a soldier. And one of the main reasons why I'm supporting Trump is because of the fact that we've seen what Hillary will do with our military. And I'm not about to let that happen on my watch. But um, I want to thank you. And then I also want to ask you, um, how are not more high-powered uh, military officers turning in their resignation when they know the danger that they face and they have to keep quiet about it? Yeah, and so first of all, thanks for what you do, and thanks for what your son does. And and uh, I, I also have a son who has served in, in Afghanistan three times for your listeners, and one wow. of those times we were Thank serving you. together different parts of Afghanistan. So it's a scary, it's a scary thing. Um, you know, I, I think that the answer is that some are afraid. I think some some do, uh, you know, uh, are, are afraid that they're going to lose their jobs, that kind of thing. I, I mean, I'm just, you know, but I would say that many are frustrated. Many are very frustrated. Um, Some of our more senior guys have have spoken up about the lack of readiness in our military. I mean, you know, we really, really do need to have, uh, I mean, a complete relook of our entire military. Uh, We have great soldiers, great sailors, airmen, Marines, all that sort of stuff. They're wonderful people, as your son is, and many of the thousands of people that I've served with over my career. But I will tell you, our military is 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 not ready right now, and it's due to this, this what I kind of describe as this disconnect between this president, who does not know how to wear the commander in chief hat, and which is a, which is an incredibly important role for a president of the United States, and the military that we have in this country. So there, it's a big disconnect. I can tell you that our our military leaders are are. Um, are, are frustrated. Now, a, another question, though, another part of this is, why aren't more that are out now speaking out? Right. And right. that, that so I've gotten a lot of grief for doing yes, what I'm are. doing. Oh, I get, sure I, get, I, mean, boy, I get attacked by all kinds of different people, you know, and the t- people accusing me of all sorts of stuff. Well, what they can accuse me of is being blunt with what I see in our, in the current administration with the scandals, the lies, the deceit, and the way that they are acting as though we have to apologize for being Americans. Right. And I'm not about to apologize. I have, I have spent my entire adult life, you know, fighting to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I'm telling you, I am not, I am not about to apologize for being an American. 
you know, America has, has saved this world a couple of times over in the last hundred years. And, and we, we would do it again if our, if our leaders, you know, said this is what we needed to do and, and, and got the American public behind it. But right now, I mean, I think that there's just enormous frustration. And, and I, I would like to have more militaries, particularly former military leaders, stand up and speak out. Um, those that have, have pitched their tent with Hillary Clinton, I can't understand why. No. I mean, they, they know that she's, she's lied flat to her teeth, you know, a number of times. Um, but, the, you know, but there's guys that they decide to do that. There's people that decide to do that. I'm not, I'm not on that. And I frankly, you know, whether it was Donald Trump or some other, some other Republican candidate, and I'm a, I'm, I grew up as a Democrat, so, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a political guy at all. What I believe in is I believe in this country and I believe in leadership and that's who I am voting for right now. And, and we need a big, big change in leadership in this country that takes us back on a path that is about our country and what we are all about and not be ashamed to be Americans like we, I mean, we have a president that has gone around the world. And frankly, Hillary Clinton has been right there with him apologizing for who we are. Yeah, sir, you are preaching to the choir. All three of us here are nodding. You can't see us, but we're saying yes, yes, yes. Chris, I guess Chris had something. Thank you so much for your service, for your book, for your. I can't hear Chris. You know, yeah, that microphone's not working. Just use hers. I'll just ask and repeat it. Repeat it. Can't hear. Sorry. Well, and I, I get to ask my question then. <laughs> okay, so Dorinda gets to go again. Go ahead. Guys, sound like my sisters. You thank you so much for all you do because sometimes when it comes to politics and all the arguing and everything that we go through, the entrenchment of all the the infighting and everything that we go through, the fact that you do what you do and yeah. the firestorm that you've been under, um, it really does pump me up and it motivates me because if you can do everything that you have done I need to put everything else aside because you are doing something for our military since they don't have a voice you're doing something that um, needs to be said when you knew that you know the dangers that we face and you're the adult in the room helping us direct back into fighting for our country and that's what I wanted to say thank you yeah well thank you I mean you know just real quick I mean political correctness gets people killed in war and and it gets it gets police officers killed on the streets of America, and we just can't have that. I'm, I'm I've had enough of the nonsense, I, and I tell people, and I, I joke about it sometimes, but but I, I but I really am not kidding. I, I am sort of past the nonsense stage of my life. I mean, I spent <laughs> oh, so I've spent over almost three and a half decades of service in the military. I grew up in a in a great family, a tough family, but you know I'm, I'm at an age now where I'm like, hey. I now have, you know, I have children. I have grandchildren. I have, I have a granddaughter who, if she lives to be the age of my mother, who still, even though she just died a year ago, is still the most courageous person in the world to me. But if my granddaughter lives to the age of her great grandmother, my mom, she'll be alive into the next century. I mean, that's what I think about. I want my yep. country. I want this country to be, you know, to be ready for her when she gets to be my age and she's ready to take this same the same fight on because this is about fighting for this country <laughs> anybody that, that sits this, this particular election out shame on you i don't care which direction you go although i really do 
But if you send this election out, you have no you have no right to complain. You have no right to complain. Okay, we in this show really care that people they better not stay home and they better vote for Donald Trump because we there cannot have yeah, we're we're a thousand percent with you. Chris I think your microphone's working now, sorry. Can you hear me now? No. No, it's I not. Just barely forget. I can barely but here, here can you, you hear me now? Here yes, you go. Yes. All right. I stole uh, Dorinda's microphone from her. Um, I thank you for your service, and, and I, too, feel like you. I'm tired of all this, and every decade I get freer, and I just say what I think. And that's what I love about getting older. But, um, you know, you talked about the ineptness uh, of the current administration. The uh, I feel like they have an alternate agenda. I can't stand that they are taking our military and trying to, you know, make it a haven for alternate lifestyles. I'm worried if um, the wrong person wins the presidency next time, we're going to have somebody who hates the military. Would you comment on the possibility of of uh, having a Hillary president, what it would do to our military further? Yeah. So, I mean, so two quick points. One, we, we cannot have our military sort of being nurtured. Our military must be warriors, and they must represent a warrior class. So when it's time to go to war, they don't they don't bat an eye and they're ready to face an enemy, whatever that enemy, whoever that enemy is. And, and there is no enemy in the world that's unbeatable. We put our mind to it. We can beat anybody. That's number one. We don't need a nurturing class in our in our military. We need a warrior class. And then on the on the point about Hillary, I mean, I'm going to tell you, there's so many people that are sick of her. And, and you know, they're going to have all these different people that are going to step up and talk about her and what she's done. Is she? She's done very little, and she's act, you know, in, in terms of actually, uh, um, you know, helping to build up where we need to be. I mean, we're we are where we are today because of her advice and assistance to this current administration over many many years. And so th- there is a, a again, there is a sense of frustration, not only in our military, but I can tell you, and certainly in the law enforcement community, because I've done a lot of work with our law enforcement community over the years as well. And there's a lot of frustration about, oh, my God, we have to put up with a person who has lied through her teeth. And, and, and she's gotten, she's placed, and, the, and the, the, the Attorney General of this country, the Department of Justice, has placed her above the law. We cannot have that in this country. She is a poor example to be a president or a commander-in-chief. I, I, just, I, I can't say it any other way. There's no way in the world that she can be a positive example to be the leader of the best country that's ever existed in the history of the world. No way. I'm so glad you said that. You know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about um, with you, General Flynn, the idea that not only is Hillary unqualified for the reasons you said, but she's also completely compromised. I mean, her emails, because of her decision and how she didn't protect her server, She's compromised. I don't see how anyone can trust that Russia, China, and any other enemy can't doesn't have stuff on her already. And we are unbelievably out of time. Lieutenant General Flynn, thank you so much for calling in. Well, thank you all for what you do for this country. This is a great show. Thank you. We had a blast. I got to tell you, folks, uh, that call, with this was, again, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. General Flynn is the author of a book. He is, if you are paying attention to the news at all, he is out there in front speaking up for the importance of actually identifying the enemy who is undermining America, the world war that we are in. Great book, great warrior, great patriot. Come back after the break. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Abbas. Wow. 
This has been a wonderful show. We're in our last segment, these fastest two hours of my week, every week. So grateful for our guest of first hour, Pete Hegseth, guest in the second hour, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. And I also want to thank the sponsor of this show, GC Works. The company GC Works funds the America Can We Talk program. They are a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. So grateful for them. So we are doing our, we usually do our uh, roundtable rapid fire at the top of the second hour, but we switch things around a little bit tonight. So we're going to do that now, our roundtable rapid fire, and Dorinda and Chris are ready, my leading ladies, so glad they're here. But I want to start with a uh, clip. This is Donald Trump, clip three, speaking in Wisconsin, and we're going to talk about his effort to speak out and try to bring in African-American voters back to the party where they belong. Those peddling the narrative of cops... As a racist force in our society, a narrative supported with a nod by my opponent, shared directly in the responsibility for the unrest in Milwaukee and many other places within our country. They have fostered the dangerous anti-police atmosphere in America and all throughout America. Every time we rush to judgment with false facts and narratives, whether in Ferguson or in Baltimore, and foment further unrest, we do a direct disservice to poor African-American residents who are hurt by the high crime in their community. And then there's also another, there's a second part of that clip. Go ahead and play it now if you would. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that Donald Trump in this past week, in this past three weeks, has had so many great speeches. And again, if you weren't listening at the top of the first hour, I'm going to list these speeches, links to them on the America Coming Talk Facebook page, because for all the time in this election cycle, when conservatives have been saying he just slings slogans, I don't hear substance, the guy is full of substance. This past week or a couple weeks, he's given a speech on economic policy, fighting terrorism, on police and race relations and on the new American future. So I'm going to go to the ladies here and our rapid fire roundtable. So Donald Trump was mocked, of course, for going ahead and saying, I want to reach out and invite African-American voters to come back. So I guess my question is really is, is this worth it? Is he right to do this? Should he keep on trying? Can he make headway? He absolutely should. And thank goodness that he has the, um, the, the gall to face this issue and to call it out and to talk directly to the, uh, to the black people in America. Because I think about the black people I know, they're like the people he's talking about that want law and order, that mm-hmm. want a safe country to live in. And they're nothing like the people that we see on TV that are marching in the streets and are the paid activists by George Soros. And so I, I am so proud that Donald Trump is speaking the truth, that he's going after these voters that have been taken advantage of by the Democrats and by the news media for generations. Yeah, I love it, too. He made a comment in that speech about, you know, for every protester on the street, this isn't exact, but something that every protester on the street, there are 30 or 50 people, husbands and wives in their homes in those neighborhoods, frightened and who deserve to have a safe community. He's trying to say, I am not defining the black community by the small number of lawless protesters. I'm reaching out and he's in his those remarks 
married or wedded with his remarks about his commitment to bring quality education to every child, to offer opportunity for every child. He's really kind of jumping over the media's determination to say Republicans will never, ever, ever again, ever get any significant percentage of the black vote. He's saying, I'm talking to you, the law abiding people. I want you to have a better life. So Dorinda, I'm sorry, I answered. It wasn't my turn. So, <laughs> no. so Don, what, what's going to happen? Is this but a it's good show? Pl- <laughs> yeah, it's your show. <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> but is, is it a good play for him to go for black voters? Well, I think it was excellent. And I think I, I like how he directly talked to them. And that's that's the thing that if you want something in life, you have to talk directly to them, which also goes to the aspect of him being a businessman. The fact that he has to go directly to the source or he has to go directly to be able he has to be able to articulate what he really wants and when you go directly to the voter and you say hey black america i am your guy because i want what's best for everybody and that means you i like the one thing that he said that he's he said there is no compassion in tolerating lawless conduct crime and violence is an attack on the poor and it will never be accepted in the trump administration that was a awesome line i mean everything about the speech there was so many awesome lines in it but that yeah. was one of them that was one of them that really you know, stuck it was out. great we d- debbie he sounds like a uniter like he's trying to bring right. us all together i know he's not dividing people up by race or gender or whatever that you know that the current administration and the democrats seem to want to do yeah. i love that we have another little clip from him i think we're ready to grow with every one violent protester there are a hundred moms and dads and kids on the same city block who just want to be able to sleep safely at night. They want safety. My opponent, Hillary, would rather protect the offender than the victim. Big problem in our society. Hillary Clinton-backed policies are responsible for the problems in the inner cities today And a vote for her is a vote for another generation of poverty, high crime, and lost opportunities. I'm telling you, folks, Donald Trump has hit a new high in how he's speaking to America. And you know what I was thinking about? How he's, you know, honestly, a lot of the kind of rank and file, maybe more establishment type Republicans didn't get behind Donald Trump. A lot of conservatives didn't. And so he spoke, you know, about both those groups. But really what Donald Trump is doing is just he's he's not ideological in a in a traditional sense. But maybe that's going to cause him to be more successful in this reaching out to voters who are normally Democrat voters. Because, you know, at one era, in fact, I don't know what the deadline and I wrote about my book and I still can't recall when it was. But for a long time, African-Americans voted Republican. Mm-hmm. I think the switch came, oh, I know when it was. The switch came when, uh, Jay, when, um, Martin Luther Martin, King. Yeah, the Martin Luther King stuff. And then right. actually when President Johnson did the Great Society and the War on Poverty, that's when the majority black vote switched away from Republicans and two Democrats. And I really think we should be very open to the idea. There's no reason any segment of voters has to be locked in to something that doesn't work. We should agree and expect that Donald Trump, especially because he's he's not so rah-rah Republican, he's about America. That message just might resonate. You know, and Debbie, like Dinesh D'Souza's movie, Hillary's America, pointed out so much truth about the Democratic Party mm-hmm. that it, that our children are not being taught, especially in, in history and in college. They're being taught anti-American stuff. But if you look back in history, you will see that FDR, 
uh, he was a he needed the votes of the Southern Democrats, the racist Southern Democrats, to pass his New Deal. And in order to get those votes, he cut deals with them. He he cut deals to agree to block anti-lynching laws that the Republicans in that time were proposing, and he agreed to exclude two professions from New Deal programs that would keep black people from getting Social Security. Woodrow Wilson was a racist. The comments LBJ made after the Civil Rights Act was passed were horrid regarding black people. And Al Gore's father, Senator Gore Sr., voted against the Civil Rights Act uh, as 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 a Southern Democrat. It, all the Southern Democrats voted against it. And it's time this was taught in our schools again. It really is. You know, that one you said back to, because I had heard most of that in my endless political reading, but I had not tuned in until Dinesh's movie on the FDR thing. I mean, to get that, because sometimes we, you said that in a lot of information, short amount of time, the Republicans were trying to get laws passed to stop lynching because blacks were being lynched lynched by Southern Democrats. And so Republicans wanted anti-lynching laws in order for FDR to get the New Deal through. He promised Democrats he wouldn't let the Republicans anti-lynching laws pass. I mean, the history of the Democrat Party is one of profound racism for decades and decades. And Woodrow Wilson, Mr. Progressive, had (laughs) segregated bathrooms in the Department of Interior and the Department of Treasury during his term in the 20s. Yeah, this is, and you know, today, this battle that Donald Trump is taking on, I'm just, I just commend the daylights out of him for doing it. He's just saying he's not going to accept where America is right now because in the last several election cycles, in the case of uh, the black vote, since the passage of the um, New Deal, of not New Deal, of the uh, Great Society and, and the War on Poverty, he's not going to accept that, that any segment of society is just locked on to voting for something which has never really helped them. And he's pointing that out. These policies have never helped you. It's like if you went to the doctor and he gave you some medication for something and it never fixed it, you wouldn't keep saying, yeah, give me more of that. You wouldn't keep doing it. You'd say, hey, this doesn't work. Or like a cleaning product would never get the stains out of your clothes. You'd stop buying that. You'd buy something else. And this idea that every voter is smart enough to see liberal policies hurt poor people and and we're not going to put them anymore. I'm glad he, I'm so proud of him and grateful he's speaking up and saying that you know work brings dignity to your life and so when the people of america are able to have a job and buy their own cell phone and they don't need an obama phone or a hillary (laughs) phone that's when we're going to be making progress yeah Yeah. because you you rob people of the potential of what they can be when you keep giving them handouts and that's not what they need i like how donald trump plainly spoke and he said um Hillary is not interested in you. He is interested in your vote. She is interested only in your vote. And, you know, again, this kind of stuff, I mean, I I have not heard someone come on so strongly as Donald Trump has in the last few weeks against the failed economic policies of the American left, the failed social policies, the undergirding of racism. I mean, the, you, you know that he's hitting a nerve because the media is getting all hysterical. <laughs> he can't say that. He shouldn't be saying that. But surely this isn't allowed. You got someone got to shut him up. Well, okay. You know what, folks? We have 45 seconds. This is uh, this is fastest two hours of my week. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to thank our new board operator who is here today interrupting me while I'm talking, Greg Lindemood. Great guy. Our new board operator. Thank him. Thanks, leading ladies.
um, Chris Davis and Drinda Randall, to my guests, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn and Pete Hegseth. Check out our website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org. You'll love it. Follow me on Twitter at DebbieCanWeTalk and come back every week because we talk truth about America. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to americacanwetalk.org. America Can We Talk, truth about America. You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.